today on Geekdeming Powers. And and I think the way I've come to think to understand publishing is that it's not really a a progression. You don't start small and get bigger and then get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger. It's more kind of like a series of of highs and lows, you know. So you you peak at some point and then you go down a little bit uh-huh. and you peak some more. So you know, I'm still very much just kind of finding my way and Really, all I want to do is just write the books I want to write and not really worry about any of this sort of stuff. But obviously you have to. You are listening to Geekdom Empowers, the podcast about people empowered through their geekiness. Welcome back! My name is Guy Hasson and you are listening to Geekdom Empowers. Geekdom Empowers is the podcast that highlights creators and fans in the geek world who do not often get to be highlighted. It's these people, it is us, who make up almost all of the geek world. By talking to each person, by hearing their stories, Geekdom Empowers creates a huge, giant, world-sized quilt of the geeks all around the world. Each person is a story, and together we are one story, one huge Geekverse quilt. I'm going to introduce our guest in a minute, but before I do that, I have to introduce the introduction, because today's episode is a repost, but not of Geekdom in Pals. A few years ago, I had a teeny tiny podcast called Blind Panels, which was the podcast for a digital comic book store for the blind and visually impaired called Comics in Power. Long story, you can do comics for blind and visually impaired people. You just need to know how to do it. It was a great experiment. Sadly, it ended. Uh, I had to do all of that alone. Anyway, Blind Panels was short-lived, but this interview, and another one I hope to publish soon, was so amazing and so on point for Geekdom in Powers that I just had to repost it here for you as well. This interview with Raviti Da was made a few years ago, and since then he's gone on to publish more books, more short stories, more translations of his books, comic books. He's won more awards, was shortlisted for even more awards, and he was, like, this guy is very busy and keeps publishing and publishing and publishing and winning stuff. And yet, in this interview, we're going to be tracing his path from being incomplete unpublished, unknown, up to being a well-regarded published science fiction author. This is his journey, and we follow people's journeys. Now, on a technical note, there's music in the background of the interview, because that's the way I did it back then, and I do not have the original recording without the music. So, there's music, hopefully it's nice, the conversation's nice, it's all friendly. Uh, As you can see, this is a completely different chemistry than I have with other people because uh, <laughs> it's just two friends talking. Check it out. It's an amazing story of how Lavie became successful. And now, the introduction and then the interview. Enjoy. You know how in the movies there are always these people who have had adventures in the past and talk about stuff they did that they can't talk about. That that. That never happened to me. I'm a writer, and what I do is I stay at home and think and write, and that's as exciting as it gets, usually. I never did drugs, never partied, got drunk once in my life, and didn't do anything I regretted when I was drunk. And many of my friends are writers, too. So I don't have any sordid history with anyone. 
Except that after doing today's interview, I realized that isn't true. There's one exception, and his name is Lovity Dhar, today's guest. There's actually one more person, another writer called Nia Yaniv, and we actually had most of our adventures together. And, and after recording this interview, I realized that we could have spent the entire hour just talking about crazy stuff we did. Not sordid stuff, but crazy stuff. Well, stuff worthy of a couple of stories, at least, or 10 or 20. So that was an interesting thing to learn about myself. But the truth is that I invited Levy on the show, not because he's a rising star in science fiction and fantasy, uh, and not because he won the World Fantasy Award and tons of other awards, but because I was there for most of it, and I wanted to analyze the anatomy of a success story. What was it like to climb up the ladder? What was it like to win such a big award? And how did that win change him and the way publishers and fans treat him? And what is it like as a writer now? And I thought that would be interesting to you to see how success happens and what happens after success. A little more information about Levit Itar. He grew up, as he mentions in the podcast, in a kibbutz in Israel, then in South Africa, in London. And he is one of the people single-handedly responsible for pushing the agenda of science fiction that doesn't come from the English-speaking countries and getting that idea more and more mainstream than it's ever been. Uh, despite what you'll hear, he's a very prolific writer, and if you haven't read his stuff, you really should. So, enough talking about him. Let's listen to the interview with Levi Tidhar. <laughs> so, what's with your British accent? Well, Guy, I am British, uh-huh. officially. Uh-huh. I had to swear allegiance to the Queen. Mm-hmm. When did that happen? That happened uh, last year, I think. Oh. So, I am officially a subject of Her Majesty the Queen. So you can be knighted? I could be knighted, and I assume it's only a matter of time before they ask me over to the palace <laughs> yes. um, for services to, to literature. Mm-hmm. Um, so far, they're not returning my calls. Uh, that's too bad. Um, so, shall, I, 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 shall we pretend we don't know each other? Um, yes, let's do that. Let's do, let's that. do that. Okay. Let's, okay. Um, we don't have a... Yeah, go ahead. Tell me, tell me about yourself, Guy. What, uh, what do you do? Well, I remember a guy who looks much like you. But with hair. On, with hair. Don't you have hair today? No. Oh, the dreadlocks went the away. The dreadlocks are, have gone away. Mm-hmm. So you're on a, in Glasgow, in World Cup. Uh, yes. On, we were on a, a pirate ship. There was a party. That's right, yeah. A little party on a pirate ship, and we snuck aboard. You didn't. You were invited. Ah, and... not sure I was invited. <laughs> I think you were. And you were dressed like a pirate. Yes. You were dressed like a Where pirate. And at the time, we, we had phones, but the fo- phones had pictures, but they also had video, which was a new thing. So people weren't used to. to well, I think my That's phone... amazing. What, back in 2005? That was like dinosaurs were still... It, it wasn't like it was no. today. 
But basically we said, okay, now do like a pirate. And you went, and, and I, I was recording this on video and you were thinking you were posing for a shot. So I said, do it again, do it again. You went, and we, it was about three times before you. That's impossible. You, I don't think video it. was invi- invented um, into There's There's a video on this on uh, near oh, you know. I'll take your word for it. Oh, okay. I don't believe it. So. <laughs> This whole story doesn't sound so, very believable. Pirates. No, no. Folks no. with video. Well, I have other and... stories. No, no, no. Well, even today, it's not like we're living in the. Not future. yet. No, I'm working on it. No. In my, my yes. labs. Um, mm-hmm. We're thinking of a device where you can see moving images, but in your living room. Moving images. Yeah, we're not sure what to call it. Well, it's very crazy. exciting. We we can't do it in color yet, and the sounds are not mm-hmm. quite working. But you know, we're hoping. It's exciting. It's very exciting. It's it's really cutting it... edge stuff. It's going to be in the internet. What well, I don't know what that is. Um, no, you know, one of the one of the funny things actually is you know, I think the thing about being a science fiction writer, isn't it, is you kind of have the ideas but you have no real understanding of how they happen you know and i feel coming from you know that background before the internet even started you know with kind of the bbs systems and all that and having these incredibly slow modems um i think like i spend most of my life just waiting for speed to come to the level that i imagine it should be when i was a kid you know you're kind of waiting for the future to happen the whole time um, just so you can download, you know, stuff. Um, but you know, one of the things I remember very sharply is having this idea of digital television, you know, mm-hmm. years and years and years and years ago. And obviously it seemed such an obvious thing to do, to be able to pause in the middle of a program, to be able to fast forward adverts. Um, but obviously there's a long way to go from having this cool idea about digital TV to someone actually developing the technology that makes digital TV happen. Mm-hmm. Well, there's an aspect of it in Blade Runner where he paused the picture and moved left and moved right, zoomed in. I don't know what that is. No, I don't okay. know what that is. No, but, but you know what I mean? There's that... I think you and I and people from our sort of that generation is we kind of just been spending all our time just waiting for the future. Well, mm-hmm. basically waiting for the moment where you could Skype on a on a laptop. You know. What yes. I mean? um, yes. So we can. So I think even now we can kind of see the future a little bit. You know, but how we get to it. You know, but we're not quite. We, you're never at the future, are you? You're always waiting for the future to happen, and then. What do you see about the future now? I don't know. Maybe I'm too old now. Maybe it's only like you have to be young to see the future. I think this is the future we were thinking about, except for the flying cars. Well, I mean, the weird. Um, when... Well, the weird thing is, it's like I've got this new book that's coming out called Central Station, and obviously it's set in Tel Aviv in like the future, and it's very science fictional. And so on, and and people like like you know it hasn't come out yet. But when people are talking about, it, they go they kind of go, it's a dystopia. And I'm like, how yeah. is it a dystopia? It's like it's kind of like saying we're living in a dystopia, which you know I, I accept that we may be living in a dystopia. But when you, it's just life, isn't it? 
I mean, mm-hmm. it seems ridiculous to assume that the future is either going to be completely horrible or completely amazing. It's a sort of a mix. It's just life. And and it always throws me when I'm like, well, what's, you know, people are born, raise their children and die. And, you know, that's kind of... And in the middle stuff happens. Yeah, that's not really a dystopia. Yeah. I remember in I, there was a story I wrote in 2000 uh, called Hatchling. So uh, the direct I, uh, I sold the rights to it, the, the movie rights, and and I sat down with the director. He wanted me to to write the script, and he was okay with everything in it except that it happened in 2016, which was the future then. Uh, mm. And I said, they have flying cars like we they do. They didn't have flying cars, but they had. Remember, we had uh, cafe cams at the time in 2000. Uh, so, uh, uh, you still get them like in Asia, you get coffee. Like, there you go. Yeah. So, I assumed there would be cameras everywhere and you would be able to access them and follow people around um, just by the, the data that's available live. And the director said, no, that <laughs> is not believable. That's not a believable thing that would happen in 2016. So, you know, we are inventing the future. Yeah, no, I know. It's. I mean, you can see the shape of it, but, you know, honestly, I guess it's up to us to decide what the future is going to be like. Mm-hmm. I mean, I kind of went from, at the moment, you know, I went from Central Station, which is this big sci-fi future. You know, mm-hmm. spaceships and internet-y, you know, internet of things and all that sort of stuff. All the cool stuff. And mm-hmm. I finished that and now I've got in the completely opposite direction, which is, I guess, going back to my child, the whole living on a kibbutz and living this agrarian communal um, way. And kind of looking, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a mm-hmm. sort of post-climate change collapse system you know a kind of basically looking at the the complete opposite of the central station future which is kind of a future that rejected all this mass consumption and and stuff you know and i've just said actually you know there's Mm -hmm. nothing particularly wrong with just living more humbly as a species i suppose so i have these very deep thoughts you know and obviously that that goes down yes. really well at parties. People say, what do you do? Well, I've been thinking about the extinction of the human race. And what do they yeah. say? Um, and then they said, it was nice to meet you. And they, they back off. That actually happened a lot. I don't know if you remember. That happened a lot <laughs> in, in, when the Bookman came out. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was in Israel, we went to the, to the icon, the, the convention. Yes. You know, I ran into this certain famous Israeli author and she said, um, so what's your book about? And I said, well, it's about giant lizards from outer space <laughs> and airships and Jules Verne is in it. And she said, wait, it was very nice to meet you. Mm-hmm. Walked away. Um, That's so the famous know. author. That's the, the famous author. Not the yeah. science fiction author. No, no. <laughs> no, I think she wrote um, romance, mm-hmm. you know, romantic Yes, I know. But yeah, it's very hard to say what. Well, it's about giant lizards from outer space, you know, and that's kind of 
something I struggle with is a lot of the time it just sounds so ridiculous. Well, you write about a lot of stuff that is uh, some t- that is on purpose hard to hard to accept on first uh, uh, glance, like Osama or you know uh, people with a Nazi fetish, uh, you know. Well, yeah, I mean, when you say, well, it's about Adolf Hitler as a private eye, you know, mm-hmm. it's about Adolf Hitler's sex life. I mean, that's a popular one, you know, and I can go on about Adolf Hitler's sex life, um, you know, for hours, but I'm not sure that's really the sort of conversation that you expect, at a, you know. Yeah. So. Well, listen, the, the reason I wanted you here, other than the fact that you're fun to talk to, um, I remember, I think... Uh, the listeners would be interested in the path you took to success or to being famous or to getting published um, I remember that you were publishing many short stories like a year and for for a few years now and you were you know like all of us desperately trying to get published to get a book published by uh, one of those big um, you know publishers and and then there was that you heard that from someone walking inside one of those uh, one of the big publishers that people are speaking about Lavitida they're saying did you read Lavitida's next thing he might be the next big thing and that was exciting and it took five years to get published. From that point um, on, you moved on to Vanuatu and so on. And... Oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't... I have no recollection of no. this. I mean, I do... I mean, one of the weird things is occasionally... And I'm so used to no one knowing who I am or reading anything I write. It's always a bit of a shock when you do come across someone who's actually read you or even likes what you do, you mm-hmm. know. And I do occasionally have these moments where I find out someone who's quite, you know... Someone who you would never think even knows who you are is actually kind of you know enthusiastic about what you do uh-huh. but um no i I think for me to be honest with you, I've been thinking about a lot because it's not really becoming any easier the the whole process you kind of assume that it would become easier with time, you know selling your next book or whatever, but I think the things I want to do are not particularly easy things to sell, you know they're yeah. not. You know, if I was just doing another, you know, if I was doing a series of thrillers about a guy who goes around the world and kills bad guys and saves the girl, it would probably be a lot easier. But I'm trying to do these difficult books and that makes everything I do kind of difficult. Um, So I've been thinking about a lot, but I think when it comes down to it, I'm really at heart a short story writer. I'm not a novelist, Mm -hmm. you know. And I mean, I say that and people go, well, you've had like 11 novels published. But but it's not it's not my natural thing, you know. It doesn't come naturally to me. It's 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 hard for me. Whereas most, you know, a lot of people, I think you are more of a maybe more of a novelist than I am. You know, it's I mean, someone like Shimon Ada, mm-hmm. you know, Shimon is a novelist first. He's not he's not really a short story writer. Yeah. You know, he's much more comfortable writing these long books. Whereas I I completely struggle with that I mean, every time. So, but isn't it isn't it actually harder because you now have deadlines? I don't even have deadlines. When so you much. sign a contract, don't you? Well, own? I did. Yeah, but I mean, even contracts. You know, 
I don't really, I kind of write the book first um, that I want to write and then kind of see if anyone would take it. I think the position I'm in now is that someone would probably publish whatever I write, you know, but who that someone is, mm-hmm. whether it's going to be, you know, I don't know. Um, but, you know, for me, in a way, I was much happier kind of just writing these short stories and sending them out than having to worry about, well, what my next novel is going to be and how it's going to perform and, and all that sort of stuff. Um, what is that process like? like do, do, do the publishers talk to you about how it's performing? Are they saying they're happy or disappointed? Or... Well, I mean, I've worked with so many publishers at this point as well. And it's also when you start doing the whole American and British thing separately, you know. So you have kind of your books come out in the, in the UK. And then, like this year, um, I have six books coming out in the US. You know, which is three reprints of the the Bookman mm-hmm. histories novels. Um, one is a, a little non-fiction book I did with Shimon, um, mm-hmm. Art and War, which is you know more of a fun. It was a fun, interesting thing to do. You know, I wouldn't call it fun, but an interesting book for me to do. You know, um, and then say A Man Lies Dreaming, which came out in the UK in 2014, is coming out in the US just this year. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's a two-year gap between the US and the UK. You're dealing with a completely different publisher who might have a completely different approach to how they want to sell and market the book. You know, the covers are, are different. Um, plus, I have a new novel called Central Station that I keep banging on about um, that's coming out from a US publisher and it's not actually getting a UK edition, so it's going to be distributed in the UK instead mm-hmm. because that's what the publishers wanted. Um, so, you know, it gets really complicated um, and at, at any kind of given point, you might be dealing with a publisher in Italy or in Japan, um, some of, or not, not in Israel because no one would ever, no one publishes me in Israel, you know, which is the irony about the, uh, that's actually yeah. surprising. Well, it's the irony about the carpenter's son who walks barefoot, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, but you know, and they they might have they might have nothing to do with you, which is a lot of the a lot of the times when you sell foreign rights, what they call foreign rights, you know, translation rights. You might have nothing to do with it. You you won't even know who your translator is. You have no say in the cover. The book comes out. You know, you don't really know if it got reviewed or you know you don't know anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to keep up with things like that because I'm you know I'm generally interested in how these things work. But um, you kind of, I think what happens is that you kind of move away from kind of being about the book, you know, and the writing, and you move further and further into the business side of it, which is sales and figures and deals and, and so on. And, and I don't think I, I, you know, in an ideal world, you would just be left alone to kind of write the books you want to write, and someone would... just pay you some money to do it so you don't have to stress about it and that would be it but in the real world it's kind of like you either take it seriously as a business or you kind of get a job which unfortunately the only job I'm kind of qualified to do at this point is to help you with your Windows 95 queries mm-hmm. advice is to turn it off and turn it on again well yeah. fortunately I actually have Windows 95 so <laughs> I think maybe you can help me 
I I can actually. Do you have a ah, good. Do you have an old modem? I can help you with initialization strings as well. <laughs> ah, that's great. I can get it out of the closet. I'm uh, yeah. So you know it. It's very tricky and it's a very difficult. Um, again, if we're talking about the market, you know, it's a very difficult environment. It's uh, it's changed a lot in the last. You know, publishing. It's a very conservative environment, but it's changed tremendously just in the last decade or so, you know, and it's gone from having a lot of kind of smaller publishers into basically having two giant multinational publishers, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, offers certain opportunities, but also offers certain drawbacks. Um, yeah. But wait a minute. Let's go, let, let's go back, though. Let's go yeah, back to the beginning. In the beginning, there are chapbooks. Right, yeah. In the beginning, there were chapbooks. You introduced me to chapbooks. And in the 90s, uh, webzines and e-zines were starting. And you were getting published um, in also in chapbooks and in e-zines. And I love chapbooks. There you go. Okay, well, can you explain what chapbooks are? Well, no, the chapbooks are actually really old. I mean, um, you know, you have... Um, you, you even used to have in the Victorian period, you had, you had these people called chapmen um, who would go around selling chapbooks. Basically, they were unbound individual stories or part of a longer story. So you could buy you could buy them in installments. You can get them in Israel. You can get these little, you know, 1930s um, chapbooks of Zionist romance stories and stuff. You know, I actually own a few of those amazing mm-hmm. stuff. Um, detective stories, that sort of thing. So they're basically small, inexpensive books, usually printed in, in you know, soft covers or they're even staple bound. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and I something anyone can do in there with a printer. Yeah, well, so you could even, you know, you could make them yourself at home, or you can do the more professional-looking ones. But but the idea is that that they're small, limited, little, you know, disposable. They're very disposable, I guess. But um, but I'm a big fan of of chapbooks. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's yeah. interesting you mentioned the the web magazines, you know, because when I was starting out, um, all the what what was called the big three print magazines, which was Asimov's Fancy and Analog, and Analog yeah. um, they all required you to submit by post. You know, you had to mm-hmm. print out your story, put it in an envelope, post it overseas, um, include international reply coupons. Which, which were uh, super expensive. They, they were just bizarre. I mean, you had to go to a post office and say, do you have any international reply coupons? They'd be like, what's that? Um, and they'd have to go and look for them. And there'd only be one person in the branch who knew what they were. And then they'd be high. Uh-huh. It was ridiculous. And, and, you know, and I never sold to any of them because they were very conservative and they didn't really understand what I was doing. And that's when the internet magazines kind of started. And that's where I published a lot of my early fiction. Now, for example, one of the leading magazines today is called Clark's World, which is an online magazine. And mm-hmm. today, it's a very prestigious magazine to be published in. You know, you end up on award ballads and year's best anthologies and so on, and a lot of people read it. You know, it has, it has, a, it has as big a readership as the traditional magazines used to have. Um, I published a story in the first issue of Clark's World, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still think that was that was a great story. That was one of my best stories. The problem is, back then, electronic magazines didn't really mean anything. It was the first issue of a magazine no one's heard of. 
you know and i think a lot of the early stuff i did kind of went under the radar a lot because it was online it was in these magazines that weren't considered as prestigious as the print ones and in the last decade this thing has been completely reversed so now the online the big online magazines are have more influence you know places like tour.com dominates the the award lists and so on and the print magazines in a way have had to both they've both changed and they've had to adapt to an extent so now they take electronic submissions now they offer the magazine in electronic books on amazon you know uh mm-hmm. so it's had to completely change and the, so the funny thing is i finally managed to break into the print magazines of, uh, after a decade you know that i didn't even once they switched mm-hmm. back to electronic submission and now it kind of it doesn't it might not mean as much as if you saw the story to to tour.com so it's i'm i just sold and this this is very exciting for me i just sold a novella to fantasy and science fiction mm-hmm. which is the first time i've ever sold anything to fantasy and science fiction you know and and for me or for the guy i was 10 years ago that is incredibly exciting you know that it kind of it's it's what it was one of my longest sort of goals was to break into these these print magazines and i've now been in all three of them but it's taken me so many years and in a way it's taken it's taken that time not for me to become necessarily better as a writer but for the magazines themselves to change and adapt you know and in mm-hmm. cases for the editors themselves to actually retire and for new editors to come in Yeah, I saw that Gardner de Zois, which was, uh, I think, uh, Asimov's magazine's editor at the time, mm-hmm. uh, gave you uh, an amazing review saying, basically, La Vie Tidhar is the, the, the greatest thing to science fiction since the iPhone or something. <laughs> um, um, and at the time, I think he didn't accept any of your stories. No, um, that's the thing. Gardner, Gardner does... like what I do he's been quite supportive I mean I've had a lot of stories in his years best anthologies but yeah that's only after he left Asimov um, but to be honest I mean like you know one thing I regret is kind of throwing away all the rejection slips I got it was just because of, I kept them for a long time but because of all the house moves um, uh-huh. I don't have them anymore so I can't even tell you but I do have all those rejection slips from you know from Gardner Dodge as well from um, FSF from yeah from people who are not even alive anymore <laughs> I mean like iconic <laughs> iconic characters they all rejected me uh, you outlived them but I mean also to be honest you know I have improved hopefully as a writer I mean I, I do think a lot of the stuff I was sending out maybe wasn't that polished um, but also I think a large part of it was me trying to do things that were very different to what American science fiction was doing and one of the things we have seen in the last decade is the rise of kind of non-anglophone science fiction writers or people who come in from from outside that kind of establishment of science fiction and trying to do new stuff and 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 you know science fiction is a very conservative genre in a way so It took you know it's still kind of struggling with with accepting a different voice mm-hmm. obviously at some point to my you know the the ironic thing that happened is that I kind of became the establishment <laughs> and um, I, I yeah. it's still sitting very uncomfortably with me uh, being being actually part of mm-hmm. the establishment now because I still see myself Wait, as a I, rebel you know yes I think you you always 
will be as long as you write like that because you always find the the way the uh the the path that that, that is almost like uh, nails on a on a chalkboard in a good way to the gut you always find a way to hit people in the gut well, um, yeah but it's you know well thank you for saying that it just feels weird you know being a kid that grew up on a kibbutz reading you know old copies of these isaac asimov anthologies and you know i i'm sure it was the same for you you know reading fantasia 2000 which was this 1980s mm-hmm. magazine that was Uh, you know was was gone by the time I even started reading it it was already old and um, and reading about these things called conventions and places where you could meet these legendary you know legendary writers um, and it just seemed like another world it seemed like an alien planet basically it could it could have been an alien planet as far as I was concerned so yeah. it's really shocking to kind of be a part of that um, in some way. Um. wait but I want to I, I still want to go through the path okay right, right. so I, I can tell you what it looks like from my end right you first of all you're writing a lot you're always sending to be published and you didn't care that it was chapbooks or e-zines or you know and the more you got published the more you were noticed also you started getting awards for your writing um And you were really big on networking. You wanted to meet everyone. And you never treated it as a, you know, as a commodity. I met this person, this guy's mine. But if you met someone else, you would say, this guy's really great for you. And this guy, you know. So you knew a lot of people and you put a lot of people together and you had talks with everyone And you kept sending stories and uh, you know there were hard times there were good times but you never stopped and there was even a period where you people were started people started talking about you inside the, you know in the halls and then you had to move away from London to a place where there was basically no internet and every like every week or so you would pop up for a few k's to send your stories and maybe write a couple of emails or chat for five seconds and then you moved again it was basically the same thing again and after a few years you came back to london and suddenly um you were being published you start getting published but not as easily as today and then there came the big award I think is is the big uh, revolution in how people saw you mm. and your writing mm. well let me let me no you you raised some really interesting points I mean to an extent yes I mean I was the thing is I was living in London you know mm-hmm. and that was super exciting for me you know as a, as, a, as a science fiction fan as a, as a someone who wants to be a writer it was just very exciting I don't think I saw it as you know I need to meet these people because they might be useful for my eventual career more more about this is really exciting that I get to go and hang out with all these people who are all writers and publishers and and mm-hmm. so on you know um I think what happened and, I, and I'm sure that was incredible that was very useful you know and I, but I think at some point which was the point we left for the South Pacific. Um, I kind of reached a point where I thought this isn't doing me any favors necessarily 
um, which is what I mean was I need to kind of get away from it all and just do the things I want to do, just write and not really get involved in that world anymore. I kind of really wanted that hideaway in a way. And I think that was incredibly useful for me, you know, um, to just get away from it. And as you said, I was on a desert island with no internet access, no electricity, no nothing. I managed to pop online like once in a blue moon and, um, and you know, and I, I didn't, I couldn't write much because I didn't have much electricity or, you know, um, but that was really useful. I was away for five years from London. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the great things was when I was in living in Laos was being able to write Osama just because no one was expecting anything from me. No one knew what I was doing. And I could just sit down and write this very odd book um, for myself, you know, and, and kind of figuring if, if I don't succeed in doing what I wanted, no one has to even know about it. Um, and you know, the funny thing was, I remember coming back to the UK and going to this award ceremony. That was the first time I, I kind of saw a lot of people again after, after being away. And it was like, they just went, oh, there you are. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. but, oh, where have you been? <laughs> well, you look the same, except that you came back a different color. Uh, yeah, I was much more tanned and also my hair was gone at that point. So I think people were like, where's your hair? That was the main response. And now I'm getting... Oh, 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 oh. Okay, we were disconnected and you were saying... Well, I was saying about my technical skills, you know. Um, I just pressed the um, off button on the laptop. So that's mm-hmm. why we got disconnected. So... <laughs> um, yeah, no. Um, so I came back to London... And yeah, I mean, I, you know, and I had a real shock as well. I remember this because, I mean, you know me, uh-huh. right? And you know, I'm not a very serious person. I think that's kind of the impression most people get when they meet me is that who, who is, you know, what is this guy? You know, I, I kind of like to just hang out and probably drink too much beer and just talk about, you know, Isaac Asimov. I don't know. I'm, a, I'm not a very serious person when you meet me. But the problem is, I am kind of, a, I like to think I am a serious writer. I mean, the stuff I write, yes. I think is, you know, tries to be, even though it's very playful a lot of it, it's, it has something to say. And, um, and I think people, because they were basing it more on maybe what I'm like as a person, they'd be like, well, you know, he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a clown. He's a bit of a, um, you know, he's that guy. And my, you know... That guy who sits on the bar and rants at you about stuff, uh-huh. you know. And what happened was, of course, that Osama, which was a book that got rejected by about 50 publishers, as far as I remember, you know, um, got rejected by every publisher under the sun. Um, Osama ended up winning the World Fantasy Award uh-huh. and winning it, you know, beating, I think that year it was Stephen King and George R. R. Martin were on the shortlist, you know. Those losers, yes. Yeah, those those guys. I mean, you know, never heard of either of them. Mm-hmm. And um, and suddenly, so people were like, you know, what, what, why, why did they give, you know, like, who, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that that did make a big difference. And in fact, one of the things I know it's really sad, but one of the things I enjoy the most is kind of hanging out with fantasy writers and going on about my World Fantasy Award. 
and it's partly because I don't even consider myself a fantasy writer in particular, and I'm not sure Osama was a particularly... Uh, it depends how you read the book, you know. But it could be read as a fantasy novel, but it could be read as, as a non-fantasy novel. Anyway, I really enjoy kind of saying, you know, how come you don't have a world fantasy award? I mean, I didn't even write a fantasy novel. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think that changed people's perception to some extent, you know, that that I was, whatever I was like as a person, I was uh, serious as a writer. And um, he did, uh, you know, I can't deny that it o- opened doors as well. It does open doors for you. Um, and I think so. it changes it changes people's perception in a massive way because people who've never heard of you are suddenly more likely to look at you. And people who, who are trendsetters or appear to be trendsetters see that you want something and suddenly you become something good. Um, but I, I want to talk about that moment before winning because I remember at the time you were very surprised to have won it. And at the same time, just I think like two weeks before a week before you were uh, your agent uh, was uh, um, haggling was uh, talking to some kind of, to a publisher about selling one of your next books and it was that you guys had to make a very tough choice should we agree to to what they're offering because they're offering a kind of a high uh, high um, um, high payment uh, kind of a high payment and and but if we if you win, you deserve a big a higher payment but if you lose you deserve a lower payment so they're willing to pay something in the middle before the mm. the award was uh, announced no no I mean it didn't quite work out I mean what happened was you know that whole year coming back to the UK I, I, I didn't really have a book contract well summer came out from a tiny publisher uh-huh. um, so you kind of assume no one's even gonna read it at that point you know And um, I was working on this really difficult, well, this really complicated book called The Violent Century, which was me kind of trying to engage with um, the kind of the, the, the underlying concept of, of the idea of the superhero coming from that kind of Jewish background of the, the Holocaust and the people who were creating superheroes in the 30s, you know. So kind of trying to write a big history of the 20th century using this kind of metaphor. Uh-huh. Uh, you know not really having any money and you know not really having a career at that point um, what happened was that initially essentially I finished the book finally you know finished it in the final draft of the book about a week before the awards um, and so what happened was that the kind of that was the right the timing just worked out and sometimes the timing works out and sometimes the timing really sucks you know um, which is kind of what happened to me. Um, you know afterwards but I mean the timing was really great so we kind of had this award and this buzz and had a really good book um, that had a sort of commercial slant to it as well ready at the same time so yeah it was a bit of a question of who do you go with you know but um, but it's not it's, it's not always it's not only about the money and you know for me it's never really been about the money so it was mostly a question of which is the best publisher for this book and I think mm-hmm. that what that was what we were in agreement me 
in agreement on from the start that the publisher who ended up with it, which was Hodder and Stoughton in the UK, we're, we're the best publisher for it. Um, so we did we did have another big offer from someone else, but we actually chose them because we just thought they were the better publisher. Um, but you know, it's the sort of decision you're having to make over and over in the length of a career. It's there isn't. I don't think there's such a thing anymore as a sort of long-term relationship. It's more like a series of of one-night stands, almost. Not that I would know, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I think so. It's a decision you're having to make over and over and over, and you just all you can really do is hope that things work out and um, and get along with whoever you work with at the time. And like I said, you know, I, I have worked with a lot of publishers at this point and I think it also comes down to that some books are better for some publishers and also things change things change at the publisher things change with you and there's a lot of pressure to write sort of the same book but different uh-huh. and, you know, and you know I'm not great at doing that I kind of like experimenting with stuff and I also tend to write sort of political books, which also make it um, more difficult sometimes to, to find an audience. I think at this point, it's also it's not so much about finding a publisher as it's fine as, as the books finding the right audience, you know, which I'm still kind of in a way waiting for 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 it to happen. So you think you haven't found your audience yet? I I think the audience hasn't found me yet. You know, I am. <sighs> You know, there, there are there are the people who like the books very much, but and and obviously things are sort of progressing. I mean, the reviews and the awards and all that are certainly not hurting. Uh-huh. Um, but in a way, it's almost like, yeah, I don't quite know how to describe it. But I think a lot of the writers I really like are writers who only really gained recognition or success after they died. You know, and they were. Like who? Like who? Well, like Philip K. Dick, you know, was a big influence on my own work. Uh-huh. Uh, but Philip K. Dick was, you know, a starving, struggling writer throughout his life, and he's become huge, you know, twenty years after his death. Yeah, and he never received all his Hollywood money. No, he never saw any of the Hollywood money. Never, you know, and um, that kind of—that's kind of what I'm afraid of—is that I would only really become very successful once I'm dead and can't enjoy it anymore. But I mean, even if you look at people like George R. Martin, you know, he was an unknown writer for about forty years before he became George R. Martin. Yeah. Um, and there's not much more you can do other than to kind of write the books you want to write and hope for the best and and just get just get published you know it's not all going to be a bit of roses unfortunately um and and i think the way i've come to think to understand publishing is that it's not really a a progression you don't start small and get bigger and then get a little bit bigger and a little bit bigger it's more kind of like a series of of highs and lows you know so you you peak at some point and then you go down a little bit uh-huh. and you pick some more so you know, I'm still very much just kind of finding my way, and really, all I want to do is just write the books I want to write, and not really worry about any of this sort of stuff. But obviously, you have to. Yeah, and I, I also think that um, sometimes you can be the hardest thing in the world for ten years, and then you disappear. 
Yeah. No one so... cares about the same stuff they cared about six months ago. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and you can see it with writers who say, you know, hit the hit the the lottery, and they kind of had their books adapted into an incredibly successful TV series, and they have massive sales through that period as well. Uh-huh. And then the TV series ends, and the public moves on to the next hot TV series, and the book sales drop off, and you go back to just doing what you've always done, which is just write the next book and the book after that. Um, so yeah, right. it's, I think it's very hard to keep keep at it long term, you know. But um, well, from the way I see you, I don't think you can actually stop writing. The thing that frustrates you isn't writing. It's getting... It's the whole process you talked about. Getting, mm. Finding a publisher, getting published, finding the right market, getting money so you can live uh, on the... You know, live just writing. Um, but I don't think you can stop writing. No, I suspect you're right. I mean, I did kind of take a break in January, so... I well, I, I took a break from writing fiction. I was working on some other stuff. Um, I mean, one of the things that interests me is different forms of writing. You know, so um, so you know, I'm interested. I'm interested in games. I'm interested in computer games. I think that's that's something that's really interesting from a from a storytelling point of view. Trying um, to write a levitated hard type uh, computer game. Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a, I'm working on a game at the moment. It's, it's, it's quite interesting because it's a learning curve. You know, I, I, I go from knowing nothing about the subject to kind of having to learn very quickly a lot of new skills and a lot of new things. So, but I do these things for fun because it interests me. Um, so I think you're right. I mean, I would actually quite like a job at this point, just because it would actually be quite nice to see people occasionally. <laughs> you know, and have so, a how long do you go without seeing people? have a purpose you know well i mean i i try to go out um once a week just to kind of go out really <laughs> that doesn't you know i i'm you know i was um i did a two-week retreat in korea recently i went to this writing retreat in korea which was amazing it was kind of part of this literary prize i got um, they, they flew me over to Korea and put me in this writing retreat and it was amazing because you didn't have to do anything other than get up have your have your lunch you know they, they gave us lunch and dinner um, which was a lot of kimchi a lot of kimchi um, and the rest of the time you just had this room with an internet connection and um, you know for, to any any normal person that would probably be the most boring thing you could ever do in your life because you literally have nothing to do um, for me, it was just great because I didn't have to see anyone. I had, I didn't have to cook, and I could just sit there and write. You know, it was amazing. But I, I just thought the moment you stop thinking of it as writing, it just becomes essentially like being in prison. You know, um, and I'd probably, you know, in a way, there's an argument to be made for having a prison for writers, and they wouldn't even notice as long as they got. You know, to go and walk around the yard like once a week or something. Yeah, if you give them a pen and paper, you know, a pen and a a pad or a computer, they would be fine. Yeah, well, which I think they do in like the Scandinavian countries. They do actually give you, you know, access to to writing and all that sort of stuff um, in prison. So I mean, that might be an option. You know, maybe I should fly over to Sweden and commit a crime just so I can have a. A break for three months. 
Uh, for three months, you should commit a serious crime and go away for, you know, a decade. Go away for life, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it probably, it probably isn't quite like that, but it can be very isolation. It can be very mm-hmm. isolation. I don't think isolation is good for you as a writer because you do need to, to actually have a life, you know. You need a life, you need to see people, you need to learn something new, you need to experience something new. You have to recharge your batteries. You do, you do, and it's... Um... But yeah, you're right, I mean, I just, I absolutely love doing it, at, le- at least when it's going well, you know, when you're writing something that you know is is working, and it's just going, that's, that's great, there's nothing quite like it. But then a lot of the time it's also just staring at the wall and playing computer games and complaining that nothing is happening and you'll never be able to put a sentence together again. Um, but but those moments when it does work are, are pretty magical. Cool. You know what? I think this is the place... Uh... Yeah, that the, the, we finished on a positive note. Yeah. Or do you do yeah. you do you want to finish on a negative note? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, thank you very much. Thank Lavie. you, guy. My pleasure. Thank you so much for a second time to Lavidida. You can find Lavie's links, his website, his Twitter, his Instagram in the show notes. What did you think about this episode? Email me at guy.hasson at geekdomimpals.com. That's G-U-I dot H-A-S-O-N at geekdomimpals.com. Email me with thoughts about the episodes, also with suggestions for guests. I need to know about people I don't know about. The website is geekdomimpals.com. On Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, we're at geekdomimpals. On YouTube, search for geekdomimpals. If you want to check out my other podcast, the Squash Buckler Diaries podcast. That is an experiment in epic fantasy, unlike anything you've ever seen before. So anything you imagine, it may be when I say that, it's not that. So feel free to check that out. It's called The Squash Buckler Diaries. I will see you next time. And for now, have an empowered day.